is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I've, I've got a special treat for you this week. Look at this. What is it? It's not a toilet flusher, is it's it? It's not. I bought an old-fashioned Dymo label I maker. I like those. So that I can put your name on your headphones. That's really good. I like those. Okay. And they come out with a little... Sort of it's sticky like embossed, bit. yeah. Sticky there's a thing. sticker and it's embossed on there. So, will we go for Ed or Eddie or what, uh, what do you want, Edward? Uh, Ed, just, I think, is per- perfectly. You, he, Jeff is doing this live on air. Yeah. Have you always... I think you should hold it near the okay. microphone so people can hear. This, this is the sound of the D. Oh, honestly, and this then... is like such glorious radio, isn't it? Turn it into the guillotine mode, and we should the little sticker should. Out. There you oh, go. That is really impressive. Honestly, listeners, if you could if you could only see this now, Ed, and it's... Stick it on your headphones. Well, and you take off the sticky back plastic, don't yes. I? You'd be good on Blue Peter. I don't think I would, actually. I never won a Blue Peter badge. Did you ever win it? Did you ever try? I don't think I... am not sure I tried it. No, I'm surprised they didn't. Don't they give you one when you get to a certain position of power? I met John Noakes once, however. Oh, and uh, I think you told me this, and, and it wasn't a great experience for you. Well, he you. passed away recently, so I think we should sort of remember him in a positive way. I'm not way. sure about this whole don't speak ill of the dead business. Really? Hitler, for example. Yeah, okay, but I think Hitler and John Noakes are slightly little different. different I think. little different. Uh, honestly. Uh, <laughs> so let's see your sticker then. It's on there. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, look at that, it's Ed. green and it says Ed. Yeah. W- weren't you a Ted for a while? I was a Ted. So I was, was a Ted at university. The reason I was a Ted was because on one of the first, um, you have those kind of orientation meetings, you know, with the teacher, you know, the professors, teachers, tutors, and uh, this uh, philosophy tutor who who was an extremely nice woman uh, said, and I gather you like to be called Ted, which she totally made, I mean, was totally news to me. And I sort of said, uh, not really, but, and so then it sort of stuck. Oh, I thought, and maybe... I quite like, and I, quite, I sort of quite liked it. Well, I thought maybe you'd gone to university. You wanted to reinvent yourself as oh, some kind I of see Ted it was Kennedy a reinvention. figure. No, it was sort of not as strategic as that. Right. What were you like as a, as a teenager, fourteen years old? What, 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 oh, was, what was the? Where's this what all was, come what from? Was, what was, First, you can break getting... John Noakes and Hitler, and then this. Uh... <laughs> we're getting to know each other better uh, uh, every week. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, fourteen years old. Oh, who who am I meeting? Like uh, you know, square as square can be. I think fourteen. I was going through the computer geek nerd. And this thing. is when you got Manic to Manic Miner. This is when you got into your ZX where, Spectrum, which is where it all began. It was. In fact, I was telling my kids the other day that you can download Manic Miner. Do 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 do. That's the music yeah. for Manic Miner. Uh, and I was explaining that I got to level twenty, which is the end, and etc. <laughs> etc. Et they were quite interested in Manic Miner. Really? Yeah. Because so you think if a, a kid these days who's used to modern computer games with all the well, they haven't seen it. I mean, I haven't actually shown it to them, but right. I was describing it to them, and they thought it sounded quite. I think good. you should keep it in their did imaginations. You, play Manic, you did play Manic Miner. Yeah, yeah. I also liked all those games where it said you were in a cave. What do you want to do? And you'd write, yes. you'd type in, go north. I think that happened? was more my speed, oh, see, yeah, just because it didn't involve as much hand-to-eye coordination. Um, shall we talk about what we've got coming up this week, then? Let's do that. We're talking about rent controls in the private rented sector. And honestly, I think this is a f***ing scandal, the, the private rented sector in Britain. I mean, it really is. You've got 10 million adults and children living in the sector. It's the most insecure. It's the most low-quality it's consuming 35 40% on average of people's incomes and and it doesn't have to be this way and that's what 
you know, in a way, this podcast is all about. And this is what this week is particularly about. Now, I, I think I should say, by the way, because I've often, when I've talked about this in the past, I've had this come back to me. I know there are good landlords out there. I think we should acknowledge that. Yeah. that there are good, decent landlords who don't jack up the rent at the first opportunity, and they should be praised, you know, and I think they should be recognised. So it's not everybody, but there is a massive problem, and that's what we're going to be talking about with, um, well, we've got three different guests. We've got Grace, who is in a rent-controlled a flat here in Britain, um, because there are some still some left. Uh, we'll be talking to Emmanuel Coss, who is the uh, was the French minister for housing under uh, Francois Hollande, and she introduced rent controls in some parts of um, France. And then Greg Beals, who used to work for me and is now working at Shelter, and we'll be talking about his perspective. That's great for him that he was able to find another job after working for you. I know it's quite it was quite nice for them to take him on. Yes, consider it took some time, but considering but, his CV, yeah, exactly. And uh, we're going to be hear- hearing your suggestions and as well as that coming in to pitch some ideas which could be reasons to be cheerful we have Susie Ruffle who's a comedian you may have seen her on TV and she did her first solo tour of the UK this year it's called Common so um, shall we move on to yeah shall I ask you yours yes I think it's your turn so I'm going to go what's your reason to be cheerful so Firstly, a little reason to be cheerful this week is you sent me an email. You sent me an email that started with the word crumbs. And I didn't realise anybody said that in real life. I I still say say crumbs. I think the only person I'd, I'd known to say crumbs was Penfold from Danger Mouse. Maybe I've been watching too much Danger Mouse. My kids love Danger Mouse. Really? And the modern Danger Mouse is really good. And it's also got this sort of... Do they call it the fourth wall, breaking down the fourth right, wall? Right, yeah, yeah. The narrator is quite sort of, you know, non-fourth wall, breaking down the fourth wall-ish. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, back to your reason to well, be cheerful. Well, firstly, I think we should try and make crumbs a thing amongst crumbs. listeners to this podcast. Okay. You know, Ed, Ed is leading the way there. He's okay, crumbs. crumbs revival. Do you not say crumbs, apart no, from I'm, when there are crumbs? No, <laughs> I will be doing from now on. Right. My, my second thing Your is, main reason to be cheerful. My main reason to be cheerful. This... And, I, I want to start this story by saying I am a disgusting person. This doesn't reflect well on me. So I want to set the scene of what happens here before we record the podcast. Right. So I'm faffing. It's not lavatorial, is it's it? It's not lavatorial. Fine, I'm fine. busy. I'm faffing around. I'm making sure we've got coffee in. Um, and you do a fantastic, oh, seriously, you do a fantastic job of it. You've got your little notepad yeah, ready. No, so I'm faffing around doing all this the stuff. The miso biscuits are back. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, my wife is freelance and works from home. And she's set up a meeting here this morning with somebody. And she said to me, can you, can you stay in the loft? Can you not come downstairs? So she wants to keep me out of sight. Right. So I'm up here. It was I'm, Barack Obama, wasn't it? It wasn't. I'm, I'm sharpening the pencils. Hillary Clinton. I'm sharpening the pencils. And this is disgusting. I think, oh, I've just got an itchy ear. I'm just going to itch the inside of my ear with a pencil, which I do, at which point the eraser comes off. <laughs> so I'm trying to get it out. But the more I try to get out, the further it goes into the ear. Yes. We're about to record a podcast where I need to be able to hear things. So I have to go downstairs and interrupt my wife's meeting. <laughs> Say, excuse me, I've got a pencil eraser you are stuck joking. in my ear. Yeah, and what? She's, she's very handy with a pair of tweezers. That's my reason to be cheerful. She had cheerful. to get a packet of tweezers. Yeah, on. yeah. Oh my lord. Yeah. So that's my reason to be cheerful. Was it covered in? Wax I, I, I need to say I've thrown it away, and none of the pencils we're using today have, have been anywhere near was any it of my orifices. When it was in. No, but I, you know, it could, it could have slowly worked its way in. And uh, has that ever happened to you before? No, first time. But they do say don't put anything in your ear smaller than your elbow. And I think I learned that lesson the hard way today. I'm presuming you shouldn't put your elbow in your ear either. 
<laughs> so that's that's my reason to be cheerful. Uh, what's yours? Well, I've got since you've got two, I've got sort of a, a mini one. So I've, you remember I fell over running the other day, so I've, I have started running again, and I didn't fall over this time. Oh, so congratulations! So I still think that's an, actually you've a, set the bar quite low. I, there. I, well, I mean, given the terrible experience, it was actually quite painful for sort of two or three weeks. So, mm. so I'm sort of I'm relieved to be kind of you know back on the horse, so that's, to speak. That's great. Um, and I suppose my main reason to be cheerful, I've just come from the House of Commons where the government has announced this energy price cap, so people will be conscious of this story i mean i i sort of felt i couldn't leave leave the week to go by given they've announced it now without sort of remarking on this because it was it was quite surreal being in the house of commons uh, i was actually sitting next to my colleague caroline flint who was the shadow energy secretary when uh, um when i was leader and so there we were and you know we were listening from the from the same place where david cameron had said that the policy was <laughs> You know, living in a Marxist universe, a joke, a con, disastrous, terrible. There was a minister with a government minister with a straight face saying, oh, he's quite a good idea and we're going to do it and all that. So I thought, you know, it just shows in politics. You know, there's that thing they say, you know, first they ignore you, then they say you're mad. Then they, you know, then they say, then they support the policy and you can't find anyone who disagrees with it. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's sort of slightly like one of those things. So did you get to, did you put your hand up? I put my hand up. Is it easy to get noticed when you put your hand up? Have you got a strategy? Well, no, you stand. You kind of stand in this slightly embarrassing sort of way. Mm. So whenever anyone finishes speaking, you stand up to indicate to the speaker or deputy speaker in this case who is sitting in the chair that you want to speak. So you stand there slightly like a lemon. Oh, sort God. Of. That must be exhausting, especially after your running injury, getting well, up and down. Indeed. And well, it's also, you, luckily, because I was the leader, I get called reasonably early. But if you're, you know, if there's a lot of people who want to speak, mm. you can really be bobbing up and down a long, a long time. Mm. That's probably the, all the exercise some of those it's MPs good exercise, get. Yeah. But my office is in the fifth floor, actually, in, in Port Collis House in Westminster. And I've taken, that's what's in the, a third reason to be cheerful. Every day this week, I've walked up the five flights at least once. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack just hearing about that. Oh, no, you're not. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, I'm delighted to say that we've got on the line Grace, who's in her 90s, and she actually lives in rent-controlled accommodation in London. Well, I've been living here 60 years, actually. (laughs) Very happy in this flat. So I've kept going and I've kept... Uh, up with the rent increases. And then, of course, some years ago, they told us there was uh, um, legislation going through whereby people who had lived in their flats since before 1989 would uh, have a regulated rent uh, and uh, a fixed formula. And that has, of course, proved to be uh, very, very good because before that, the landlords could ask... uh, what they liked, really. Well, I mean, it does go up every two years, but the rent is, is still manageable. And do you have other neighbours who don't have their rents controlled, and does that make a difference? Do you see the difference with them, or is everybody in your block ha- have, has a controlled rent? We haven't got many people who've been here since before 89, uh, or, or who are still rent payers. I don't know what other people pay here, but... Certainly, for instance, the girl next door to me has only been there a year or so. She's doing two jobs to pay the rent. And what what does it make you think about the whole idea of rent controls, which is what we're featuring on the podcast? Do you think they're a good idea? I think they're a very good idea. I mean, I believe in Germany it's very regulated, uh, for instance, uh, how much rents can go up. And also uh, obligations are put on the tenants as well. 
by their legislation. And I think that's a good idea, too. People should look after flats properly. And yes. when you think when you think great about the young people today who are having to go into this rental market that is uncontrolled, what what do you sort of feel for them? I think it's awful for them. It's really very difficult. I don't know how they ever manage it. And proper regulation with obligations on both sides uh, would be a very good thing. Well, Grace, it's really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, Grace. Take care. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Emmanuel Koss, who is Minister for Housing and Sustainable Habitat in the Francois Hollande uh, government. Emmanuel, tell us first of all, why were rent controls introduced in Paris, first of all? So, you know, the situation in Paris is exactly, not exactly, but uh, think like in London. So you can imagine yes. uh, housing situation very difficult. We lack affordable housing. We have very huge difficulties, especially for care workers to find a level of rent would be affordable. So to stop the crazy increase of rents in Paris and in my metropolis, the idea was to regulate the rents. And so uh, we decide to uh, adopt a new law uh, to organize this control. But it's important to understand that it was huge discord between the left wing and the right wing in 2012. And uh, we have also all the professionals, they believe that if rents are regulated, the rent control will develop a black market rental, uh, and also that it will block investments in housing. And what has been the impact, Emmanuel, of the rent controls in Paris in your judgment? It's working. I think it's important to say that we can regulate rent. It's important to explain that we can have a regulation. We we have a system to have an observation about the well in each city, uh, you know, and you have to say that in each sector, in each building, you have a, a reference rent and you have to, to use this referent. So, so just to explain to our listeners, the basic rule in Paris, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you can't go more than a certain percentage beyond the sort of average rent for the area. You have a floor price and a ceiling price, and you have to take your, 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 your price in, inside this. And what we can, we can say now, two years after, it's working we we have uh, several estimations. We estimate that uh, maybe 17% of owners respect the law. So, of course, uh, in two years is good result, but I will prefer that it was uh, uh, 101%. Uh, we estimate that uh, we arrive to reduce uh, excessive rents by maybe uh, 40 euro per month. Okay, so that's a, signi- that's a significant saving. Yes. And has it had an effect on the housing market and home ownership? Uh, regulation starts in Paris and uh, all the, the side effects uh, uh, professionals said uh, didn't arrive. So uh, the market continued to be very dynamic. You also decided when you were the minister, I believe, to extend, the, extend this policy from Paris to Lille, among other places. Tell us about that uh, reform that you introduced. You know, Lille is the, mo- the third most expensive city in France. You are in a one hour from Paris, London and Brussels. So 
that's very important. We uh, um, organized uh, the, the controls uh, and we started uh, the 1st February uh, in this year's. And for the moment, we have the same results as in Paris, so it's working. And it's very interesting for, for this city because you have a lot of small flats for students. It's in Paris, it's in Lille, and is it in other places as well? It's now the new government to decide uh, in 2018 if uh, they decide to uh, start this uh, new control. And do you think they will decide to uh, put the law into place? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, it's difficult for Emmanuel Macron right. to, to, to stop this movement. It's difficult for him to abandon it. Yes, think. but I'm not sure because uh, uh, for the moment, for all the questions, or question, uh, it's very difficult to, to, to know exactly what they, they want to do. I have one final question, which is, we're obviously doing this podcast because, about rent controls because we're interested in it for the UK. What would you recommend that we do in the UK? Would you recommend we follow the example in Paris and Lille and elsewhere? What is very important is to organize the observation of the rent, you know, to know city by city the rent practice. Uh, tenants and owners, professional, it's very important because, because when you have transparencies, you can see that uh, we stabilize uh, the level of rents. And then uh, I see that um, the French experience uh, show me that um, we decide in French law to impose to the city the system. And I say it's not, it's not a good idea. We have maybe to decide to, to organize the system. You think give the power to exactly. the city? I think you have to share between the government and the local city the responsibilities. We have to make more and more education about this question of regulation with owners and also to all tenants because it's difficult to explain for all the persons that they have a right to defend them uh, if owners don't respect uh, the levi price. That's been brilliant, Emmanuel. I want to really thank you for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm delighted we're joined by Greg Beals, who is the Director of Communications Policy and Campaigns at Shelter. Uh, full disclosure, Greg used to work for me as Director of Strategy. Uh, he was, in fact, the person that came up with the energy price freeze. Was uh, it you that came up with the Edstone? He, I think he denies responsibility for that, and and it's and it's true. I think, uh, but uh, but no, he was definitely. I was about to say we we, we all take responsibility yeah, for true. all the decisions. That's true. <laughs> but he was definitely Mr. Freeze. Uh, he was. Th but thanks for mentioning the Edstone, Jeff. Uh, Where is uh, it? Was, uh, is it? Your back garden? No, it's it's been sort of broken up and sort of <laughs> recycled in a green kind of way. Um, now, Greg, we're here to talk about housing. Let's start by just outlining from Shelter's point of view how you see the private rented sector in the UK, because there are, I think I'm right in saying, 10 million people now, people, adults and children living in the private rented sector. But it's not in a great state, the private rented sector, is it? I think we would say that's quite an understatement. I mean, the, the private rented sector has grown from uh, 4 million people 20 years ago to, as you say, in excess of 10 million people uh, today. And it is, it, effectively, it is the most brutal part of a fundamentally broken housing market. Um, I mean, it's brutal in terms of the rents that people are paying. Uh, uh, it's brutal in terms of the conditions. It's the part of the housing market where conditions are poorest. And basically, in terms of the whole set of rights that people have about having a good home, it is the sharp end of the housing market. 
I think what's really interesting about listening to Grace, though, is until, I think I'm right in saying 1988, most private rented sector was controlled in terms of rent. But 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 we've now got, you know, one of the most insecure, you said, real issues about quality, expensive systems in presumably in Europe or, or the or, or the you know industrialized so, I mean, world. Uh, absolutely. So I mean, so at Shelter we work obviously with thousands of people at risk of homelessness, entering homelessness. Um, eviction from the private center, private rented sector has become over the last 10 to 15 years has become the number one cause of homelessness in Britain. Um, and that has that's come at the same time as Obviously, the amount of properties available for affordable rent has fallen dramatically. It was one in three. It's fallen to less than one in five. And of course, for the last decade, home ownership's also falling. So we've had this we've had this rapidly growing sector of private rented um, accommodation, and uh, and and we've got with the people who are in it now are a fundamentally different set of people. They aren't they aren't necessarily the the sort of stereotype of a, a, a young person starting out in life, getting ready to save. We're talking about large numbers of families, um, large numbers of families with children. Uh, the uh, we Shelter ran a survey of some of the people in the private rented sector recently and found that you know one in five of those families with children living in the private rented sector has moved three times in the last three years. So people have no security at the moment. They have absolutely you no security. You could be thrown out six sort of months. Six, six months. months. They have absolutely and then two months no notice. Is that right? Yeah. So absolutely no security now. In all other European countries, people have in excess of a year as a minimum, but but in excess of a year. In Germany, which uh, you were mentioning a minute ago, there are lifetime tenancies. So, I mean, th- that is that is the big that, that is the biggest, to our mind, and most radical change that you could make. Significantly increasing those tenancies. Um, and obviously, at the same time, you have to put in place protections so that you, people can't just jack the rent up on an annual basis. Because if you just put the rent up, you can, you know, if you double the rent one year, you're, you effectively you're evicting someone without a cause. But 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 you so you have some protections around putting the rent up as well. But you give people the ability for their home to be their home. Am I right in saying that there's a distinction between controlling the increases in rent, which shelter supports, and if you like, sort of setting the level which you're more sceptical about. Is that the right distinction? Some people do make that distinction, and that is, that is some systems differ in that way. I mean, what you're looking to do with these controls and protections is give people the kind of power that they have in many other markets. Let me just give you one example. I mean, most people would say that the, a fundamental principle of a good society is a job and a home. But when it comes to the labour market, it is a labour market, People have basic protections that make sure that they aren't put at great disadvantage by the power imbalances. Women, when they become pregnant, have protections of, uh, associated with that maternity. They can't, you can't just give their job away. A, a woman who's eight months pregnant in the private rented sector can be evicted. We've seen at Shelter families with one-month-old children evicted from their homes. Those are basic protections that need to be put in place uh, at uh, and and you can do it in a number of different ways, but the system as it exists at the moment is fundamentally broken. So big priority of longer tenancies, change the balance of power. So in you, I think you mentioned uh, what's happening in other European countries, but so in Germany they have, and I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong. In Berlin, I think Miet 
Pretzbremser. That sounded perfect. I didn't sound very good, did it? It sounded like I sounded like I failed my GCSEs uh, in German. Anyway, it's like a brake system. I mean, you, I don't believe you failed your GCSEs. Well, in no, German. I didn't actually take German as a GCSE. Thank goodness, as it turns out. You didn't. Out. No, I didn't. You'd never be able to tell. Uh, exactly. Thank you. Anyway, that thing, you know, the brake. Now, I quite like the idea of saying to Sadiq Khan in London or Andy Burnham in Manchester uh, or, you know, Steve Rotherham in Merseyside, the the mayors, saying, look, we're going to give you the power to impose a break on rents. So, you know, let them take the decision. So if Sadiq in London wants to say, well, look, I think there's a real problem. You shouldn't be able to have rent, say, more than 10 percent above the average in the market then, you know, that, that would be something he could introduce. Well, no, I, I mean, I think the idea of more powers for, for localities is a very good one, needs to be explored. I mean, the one word of caution I'd say about it is I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking that the, um, that the problems in the private rented sector are just located in small areas in city centres. Right. We're talking about 12 million people now right. in Britain right. who are at the sharp end of this market. Uh, that is not going to that that broad picture requires big radical change to the entire system, and it probably isn't going to be solved by you know ju- just, just by in a handful of regional or, powers right. in the centre of these cities. Now, there's one other thing that struck me about the debate in other European countries. They've got, and particularly about Germany, I think, and I'm not going to try the pronunciation of the emergency break again. You'll be pleased to hear. These tenants associations, national tenants associations, because you were talking about power earlier on, it strikes me that that is really at the root of this. And tenants are very powerless against landlords, partly because of rights, but partly they're not organised. I mean, isn't there, I know there's Generation Rent in London, which I think has been doing some of that. It's a good organisation. But isn't there a case for doing some of that? Well, I think I think there is a case for... Trade unions uh, maybe should be doing it. I mean, I, I, I definitely think there is a case for more organisation of uh, tenants. I mean, historically, it's been difficult to organise. Although I think you did, as I remember, organise a rent strike once in your career. Yeah, my college was rather on a small, smaller, so slightly small scale. Um, we'll talk about that one day. Um, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. There are pictures, I think, uh, available on the internet. So are you yelling down a loud hailer a bit on a megaphone? A bit yeah? of that, actually. Yeah. What do we want? I think it was some kind of what do we want chant. <laughs> it was about there were the the college that I was in. It was at Oxford College, so we weren't exactly the underprivileged, but it was a thirty nine percent rent increase that they were proposing. So we were all a bit outraged. So I think the chant was what do we want? Single figures. I can see why it caught on. You Trust won, me, single you? figures I'd have in a chant. Eh? <laughs> the, way, the way I've been told this story is you were one. You were successful in your We were successful-ish, I think. Despite uh, the chant. Um, despite the chant. If only we'd had you, Jeff, we'd have had a better <laughs> chant. Um, now, OK, so tenant association is a good idea. Sort of, you know, organising tenants, uh, longer-term tenancies, We've heard what you've got to say on rent controls. What else are the other big solutions on housing? I mean, we're going to have to cover this in a future podcast as well, but just give us a sort of tease, if you like, of some of the things that we should be thinking about. You've already talked about you know, building lots of houses. That seems to me to be fundamental. Well, well, but... well let me give you two things. So, so first of all, the, I think I think controls in the, the, the rental market can make a big difference to lots of people who are who are renting. But there are always going to be groups of people, potentially quite large groups of people, who need substantially sub-market rents on their properties. So that's lower than the market value. That's yeah. right. Low, lower than what the market can deliver, even with regulation and control. And that is why we as an organisation advocate very significant increases in the building of social homes. Uh, and then the other thing that is is not working in relation to 
the housing sector is what we call a speculative model of development uh, and the way in which land's released, the way in which planning works, none of that is working. It's delivering a totally dysfunctional housing market. And these people that we're talking about here in the private rented sector, they are at the sharp, brutal end of that market. People have got into thinking that houses are magic boxes that just keep doubling in value so you don't need a pension. The expectation that if you invest in housing, you make a lot of money is part of the reason why the market has become so broken. And of course, the truth about the private rental sector is almost no one wants to be in it. Almost everybody wants to get out of it. And the reason it's growing is because it's, it's become harder to do. Great. Thank you. So you let people know on Twitter that we we're going to be talking about rent control this week. and um, That's how we found Grace, actually. Yeah. Who'd, who'd have thought that you could find a 90-something-year-old lady exactly. through social media? Exactly. Shows uh, Twitter's got a purpose. <laughs> um, this comes from Jack Brooks. He says, rent control, the Berlin perspective. Um, so Jack lives in Berlin. He says, I pay €260 Euros per month, which is about £230. Pounds. Thanks, Brexit. Um, Bills included a good-sized room in a shared flat with four other Berliners. It's not a dive. All the amenities work perfectly. The landlord last week got us a shiny new shower. Because of this, he's able to work part-time as a nanny alongside a language course and have a comfortable standard of living. He then compares it to his brother, who's in rented accommodation in London, £700 a month once bills are included. Says the downside in Berlin is that the the controls have, have led to an insane demand for housing. He had to live in an Airbnb and right. eat through his savings right. before he got to Although well, we have that here probably. You too. do, yeah. Um, he says, my solution to this is rent controls are great, but are not the solution for the rental sector in and of themselves and definitely need to be done alongside the building of affordable housing. What do you think? I, I sort of uh, agree with Jack, I think. You know, and reflecting on the conversation we've had today... I think the case for long, longer-term tenancies, you know, could even be lifetime tenancies. So, in other words, you've got to have a reason to to, to kind of get rid of your tenant. It can't be just you want to raise the rent. I think is pretty overwhelming. I think the the argument for some kind of controls, including controls devolved to cities, I think is really, you know, what, what, we're far too centralised as a country. Why don't we give power to local elected people to make their make decisions on these kind of things? But but that doesn't pretend it's the whole solution to the housing problem. The fundamental solution is build more homes. But you know we we and we'll have to come back to it in future episodes. But I, I sort of come away thinking something does need to be done, and we need to be at the sort of more radical end of it. I've got an opposing view from Stephen who says on rent control and actually energy price caps, housing benefit increases, these run the risk of achieving the opposite of the intended effect. The incentive to invest capital in housing or energy production will be reduced, reducing its attractiveness as an investment. As a result, fewer private houses will be built, reducing supply and distorting the market. Well, look, I think it's good. I really appreciate Stephen. Stephen sent us a really nice email, and I really appreciate him sort of tuning in. He doesn't really obviously agree with you know, some of our stuff or quite a lot of our stuff, but it's great to have people you know, of the opposing viewpoint. I understand the argument about investment, and I think you've got to be obviously careful about the way you do this. But I think at least in some areas, the rents are so high and so – you know, such, such such large amounts of money that we're talking about that I think you could restrain them, moderate them, 
you know, not, not in an unreasonable way, but I think you could do it in such a way that it doesn't sort of knock over the whole market and prevent people having housing. You know, it's been the traditional argument, you can't do this because it'll stop people, you know, it'll stop anyone renting out. But I just, I, I think if it was if it was ridiculous and done in a crazy way, maybe that would be the case. But I don't, I don't think it's necessary. But then you, you've got a whole generation or generations of people who've been sold on this idea of home ownership and housing as an investment who haven't invested into other things like pensions. I mean, what happens? What happens? Yeah, well, look at that is is obviously it is obviously complicated, but but I think I think just for too long, as we heard in our conversations today, the the you know private rented sector tenants have just been. And, you know, just think about if you've got kids. You know, I've got kids of school age. In, there are lots and lots of people, probably millions of people with kids who don't know from one month to the next whether they're going to be able to stay in a home. And whether their kids can carry on going to the same school. I mean, that's just that is just a recipe for an unhappy, insecure society. I think that's why we've got to change it. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com we'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've been talking about it's funny this podcast being about ideas and and the future and rent control in a way seems like a thing from from 50 years ago and it's time has come again it does i suppose but but maybe it's also that we're catching up with the lessons of what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years which is that sort of sense of deregulation let's leave it all to the market hasn't worked in lots of ways well let's hear what you think you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com you can follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or um, find us on facebook facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast same goes for um ideas for people we could talk to on future shows and ideas that you may have had have an email here from lara canaro who says following up on last week's debate do you believe biology will always be an obstacle to gender equality um, as you mentioned studies suggest that the pay gap starts and widens once women begin to have kids will policy making and changes in social dynamics ever be enough to close the pay gap for good well i came out of the discussion with jess phillips thinking you could because if men and women take equal responsibility for for bringing up kids obviously women are the ones having the kids but you know, take equal responsibility for bringing them up. I don't see, I don't know what you think, but I don't no, see No, I think why... the same. I think that it's, it's taking away um, an employer's excuse to treat men and women differently. And also men's expectations about, you know, what their role is and, and that... Come on, Jess told us off about this last week. She said that we shouldn't have such low expectations of ourselves. Oh, that is true, that yeah. is true, yeah. Lara adds, on a lighter note, I propose making Ed Ball's Day a national holiday. April the 28th. You know Ed Ball's Day. I did. It was the first question in my quiz. And how, how, quiz. Do you, how do you mark it every year? Have a street party. <laughs> we'll do the Gangnam style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, this comes from James Pryor, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I recently moved over to Melbourne, so you're keeping me up to date. Uh, he says, I have a funny fact to share, having just listened to your episode on the gender pay gap. Did you know that you're more likely to be a chief executive in 2017 if you were named Peter or John? than if you're a woman. 
but not Ed or Jeff. <laughs> So that is nomina- nominative determinism. That that is uh, that is kind of where it gets a sign, isn't it? Of how yeah, how far that you know we talk about Parliament and Parliament's got a long way to go, but the boardroom's got an even longer way to go. And um, finally, this comes from Joel, who runs the Milliverse, oh, which you're, you're well aware of. The Milliverse, if people don't know, is a Twitter account which imagines what life had been like if Ed had been swept to power in 2015. Yes, yeah, sort, sort of. It's an alternate reality. It's, it's laughing with me rather than at me at least sort of 50% of the time. Um, he says, any chance you'll do an episode about climate change? I'd Definitely. love to hear Ed talk about his old job and new Brexit challenges, some bright ideas to help save the environment. Replace the poles with non-melt replica polystyrene snow. Interesting idea. I had a very good, I had a similar idea, which I said on the radio years ago. And I, I do feel that a lot of You're policy... You're a prophet ma- before your time, I, I, I think if policymakers had listened to that radio show, we'd be living in a very different we world. Would. Maybe the Milliverse, we the, the, the Jeffverse, yeah. yeah. Um, the Jeffocracy. Um, he says, relocate rainforests to the moon, um, thereby putting them out of reach of greedy timber merchants. Um, Elon Musk's got plans to do that already, <laughs> actually. <laughs> and finally, genetically engineer a superintelligent monkey and ask them what they think we should do. I mean, isn't, isn't that what we are, really? We're super intelligent monkeys. Yeah, we're not. Are we genetically engineered? No, I mean, I guess not. Just <laughs> well, by, so uh, must be speaking personally. <laughs> did did any of those ideas? Uh, were there any of those tabled in your former job as environment secretary? No, I like the idea of sort of you know you need to keep the rainforests away from the nasty developers. Anyway, he's a great bloke, Joel. And we we love the milliverse. So please get in touch with your ideas, be they slightly flippant or very serious like Joel's there. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Susie Ruffle, hello. 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 Hello, Ed. We've been uh, we've been talking about rent and rent controls today. Have you mm-hmm. been victim of unscrupulous landlords in the past? Yes, of course. I've lived in London for 10 years. <laughs> Mate, of course. Goes yeah. with the territory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, a, yeah. I'm a starving artist in London, of course. I've been... Yeah. Yeah, it's really expensive to live in London. Mm. If anyone's thinking of doing it, I'd say, please don't, because if anything, you're going to shove the prices up for the rest of us again. Have you noticed it going up and up within 10 years a lot? Oh, God, hugely, yeah. And the idea of me ever getting on the property ladder is sort of laughable. Here's what you do. I've I've figured this out somewhat recently. You you find out where is being described as murder mile. Right. And then you move there, because... Wherever there's been a property boom, people always say, oh, my God, I mean, I can't believe it. People used to say this was Murder Mile 10 years ago. Well, I live in Hoxton now, which is considered very cool. Yeah. But it's my bit is really rough, but it's just not been done up yet. Not even by you. Not even so by me. it's not been gentrified. I, no, it's not been gentrified at all. I mean, my flat's nice. I want, I want to be clear here. I got, it's nice and clean. <laughs> it's got, got a Japanese nice toilet. It doesn't have a Japanese right, toilet. Okay, it's just got yeah. a normal toilet. But, yeah. So we've got a toilet. Tony Jeff has so got fine. one of those. Indoors. Indoors, yeah. yeah it's, well, we're on the second floor, so it'd be a real bugger if it was outdoors, <laughs> wouldn't it? You've just got to go across a tightrope to have a wee in the night. That'd be a right nightmare. So, Susie, you brought in some ideas. I've got loads of them. Which, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Do you want to hit us with, hit us with we your We need first? them, Susie. We do. A couple of things to make things better. This weekend, don't want to brag, but I'm about to. Uh, I went to Disneyland. Wow. I know. Which Did one? You? Paris. Right. I mean... I've already mentioned how expensive my rent is. Rent control, Paris. Keep up. And uh, I think it would be great if we banned kids. From Disneyland? Yeah. Good idea. Okay. So how were you adversely affected by the presence of children at Disneyland? They were in my way a lot of the time. I was trying to run around and enjoy myself and I was worried I was going to kick one of them over. 
Uh, then there were they were in the queue. They were being noisy. It was the teenagers that were the real issue, Jeff. That's the thing because they get to that age, don't they, where they start showing off. Mm. I appreciate that I'm a comedian, so I've never really grown out of that age. But <laughs> that's that's neither. But do you as just as a comedian, do you show off in private as well as when you were being a comedian? I always wondered. This. Are you asking about the tears of a clown? The sad, that's the sad right. eyes I am. behind, yeah. or are you like? Yeah, you know, I go home very... and I sort of listen to really melancholic opera. And just cry. <laughs> do you show off on the sort of Disney rides? No, not not. There's not really a way to show off on a Disney ride. No, I would I have given not. it a good whack. It's kind of but... acting up when you get your picture taken. Yeah, you know, waving the arms around. Uh, wait, yeah, with Mickey the... Mouse. Do you like do, you know, well, well, like, I don't do want to like, say funny things with Mickey with Mouse. Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I do. Right. I'm, I'm always a bit embarrassed. Unless I'm working and talking about being a comedian, I would never tell someone that I'm a comedian. So what do you like, tell people instead then? Okay, so a little while ago, I got into the back of a black cab mm. and... I didn't want to talk about the fact that I was a comedian. It was after a gig. I'd had a few drinks. I wasn't drunk. I was just merry. And the guy said to me, what do you do for a living? And we happened to be driving past Phantom of the Opera. And so for some reason, I said, I'm the assistant stage manager of Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) That's a creative lie. Really creative lie. Really creative lie. I don't know why I said it. Did you get found out? No, but then I had to improvise about the show. He'd seen it twice. (laughs) I haven't. I've just heard the musical. So then he was like, oh, when that boat comes in, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, mean, we've really got it down now. That cab driver might be listening and now might realise. Oh, my God, I'm really sorry. And then later on, he said, have you always done that? I said, no, I used to work at The Lion King. (gasps) I'm such a liar. It's terrible. That is creative lying, though. Really creative lying. I don't believe that you've been to Disneyland. I haven't. I'm not even <laughs> Susie Ruffle. <laughs> All right, give, give us another idea. I've realised, post like Brexit, and I, I did a show at the Fringe last year that was sort of about uh, working class people and working class people's opinion of politics and how uh, I found after the Brexit vote, some people were saying in some of the lefty-leaning newspapers and some people on Twitter were saying that it was sort of racism of white working classes that swung the vote. And so I did a show at The Fringe that was about the fact that I don't think, I don't want to mar all working class people with the same brush because that's that's who my people are and and that's not who my people are. And so what I have decided, which I think would be really good, uh, is that if you're sort of a racist person who is, you know, who's mean about everyone or prejudiced in any way, I think it should come up on your medical records and then a foreign doctor can decide if they want to save your life. Oh, that's great. What do you think? Because then you could be like, oh, like he's horrible to women. And then a female doctor would be like, well, I'm very sorry. We're not going to keep you alive. enforcement issues, you might think. Do you mean, Ed, you're the one that works in politics. You get it through. It's quite hard to work out how you're going to... And how many people are actually self-proclaimed racist? Well, no, they're I mean, not. But everyone that... could like sort of keep, you know, like, if there's a, like a guy down the pub that's always like, oh, it's immigration, and I should so, travel, that keeps taking the jobs. So anybody... go, oh, I'll pop it down on Bob's thing. Bob's a racist. Anyone who uses the phrase, I'm not racist, but. Precisely. Yeah, it gets Precisely. put on the medical record. Yeah, and then someone can be like, oh, sorry, you're going to have to go to the bottom of the list. <laughs> We've had Karen come in. She's lovely. <laughs> Why did you do the show about people who are stereotyping? Because, because I'm, I represent a constituency that was 70 plus percent for Brexit, one of the top five yeah, or six. Yeah, and I find that people are very simplistic about the reasons why people voted that, for Brexit, yeah. and, that, and that's in fact, a- it's quite deep the reasons people voted for Brexit. Not just about Europe, but about wanting big change. And we can, you know, we've all got probably agree with each other that Brexit's got real, real problems. Yeah, but you've got to understand some of the reasons for it. I think absolutely. I think it's also really it's very easy for someone like me, who's like a, someone that is on the left that lives in sort of you know artsy bubble of London. I've sort of like you know. I've left my working class life behind me. My 24 cousins are still in Portsmouth doing Did they vote leave? Things. Yeah. 
a lot of them would have done. And 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 it, I mean, it always comes down to the same thing. And I've had so many arguments with people about this, not you, Ed, but a, a lot of it came down to lies on a bus for my family. My family were really surprised the next right. day when Nigel Farage said on Breakfast TV, oh, we can't really do that. Because I think that... I'm, I, my, no one in my family has ever been to university. That we're, we're labourers and people. Are, I come from a line of factory workers. But let me can I ask you a question. So, yeah. so th- I take the point about lies on the bus. Yeah. But are they now having regret? Are they now thinking we made the wrong decision or not so much? I think a mixture of the two. Right. I, th- I, th- I think because post Brexit there's been so little to catch hold of what's actually happening that now they're just confused. Because they're like, oh, well, what is happening? What does this mean? When is it going to happen? Well, it's two years from now. That feels like a lifetime away. Is it going to change? Do you not think also that it was, and, you know, I keep saying this, but I was for Remain. Do you not think also it was deeper than the bus and all of that? Yeah. And, And it was sort of, we feel like we haven't been taken seriously, not just on immigration, for like 30 years. And and we don't feel our lives have got better or the lives of our kids are getting better. And this is a chance to to make a proclamation for big change. I, I, I think that's exactly what happened. I come from Portsmouth. I come from... I, my mum and dad are sort of very upwardly mobile people. They've done really well for themselves. But I come from sort of a, a very sort of working class family. And I would say that for a long time, it feels like that part of our society, that part of the community, a, a group of people that felt like they had been ignored and ignored and ignored and ignored and ignored, finally had the opportunity to go, I'm going to I'm going to yeah, say for change. I think, it's really, I think that yeah. message, take back control, yeah. was a, a yeah. one that really clicked with people because, of course, you think of it in terms of immigration, but people have lived through successive Labour and Tory governments and they haven't, uh, exactly they haven't seen right. the change they want to see. So they think, well, what else could it be? Maybe what, it's the EU. That's what the papers are telling us. And that's why I slightly is. think whatever your position on Brexit, it's sort of due humility about the vote is a really important starting point. But look, obviously, I'm very proud of some of the things the Labour government did between 97 and 2010. But you've got to face the fact that lots of people felt it wasn't enough and that they were, in a way, demanding bigger change. So I, I think you're bang on on that. A lot of people are talking now, oh, should there be another vote? Should there be this? I think it's like, this has happened. Now we have to come back together as a community, as, you know, reaching out to people and go, right, OK, well, let's... We want this change. Let's try and make it the best. But it can by the way, I think there's something in this about I'd say sometimes to Remainers in particular, but also Leavers. Tell me if you know a Remain, a Lever or a Remain, like people on the other side. Yeah. Go out and reach out to those people Absolutely. on the other side so you understand where they're coming from. But that's the first step. Yep. To the unity that you talk about. You know what we should do one week? What if if you're a progressive person? What does a good version of Brexit look like? Yeah, because I mean, it doesn't, really doesn't seem hard. like there is one. But it's really in, hard. Is, is there a way of thinking about it that reframes it? If it's something that's got to happen, then then what what does a good version look like? Dead air. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Susie, what next? I, I think that you should have to come out with your straight or gay. What? To like your family? De- declare yourself. If you're straight, you can just say mum, dad, just so everyone knows. I like sex. Right. With a boy and a girl. Not not three of them. No. That'd be very <laughs> I mean, God, just think of the admin. But um but but that way it would make it less awkward for gay people. Acknowledging to your parents that you know what sex is, let, let alone that is. you're sexually active is a, is a terrifying well, thing that straight people out, don't have to go through, I guess. That's why coming out is really weird, because basically yeah, I had to point. let my parents know how I sex. Yeah. That's which is so point. weird when you think about it. Because yeah. you've never had to go, Mum and Dad. Yeah. This is how I prefer it. <laughs> but that means that then you have to have a conversation with your parents where you're making them imagine you sexing. It's really weird. It's horrible. And if we've got to do it, all you weird old straight okay, people could do it as well. Good. That's good, I think. All right. Solidarity. Yeah. Coming out solidarity. I'm, I'm going to call my mum once we're done. Yeah, no, no, you're straight. <laughs> um, that, that's all of them. Great. So, Susie, um, 
you do a podcast with Tom Allen, who I is do. Hilarious also comedian Tom Allen. Yes, it's called Like-minded Friends. I like-minded guess. Friends. Thank you, Ed. And you've had a hundred episodes. We've had a hundred episodes. Which have been episodes. incredibly popular. And is that every week? There's usually about three a month, and it's just two best friends taking on a different subject every week. And it's like you overhear a conversation. It's just we wanted to put it out there. It's just fun and it's silly. And we we started doing it because we thought sometimes you get a bit. We do a lot of drives, and sometimes you get a bit lonely, and you'd like to just have something that, other than music. It's a bit playful and a bit of fun, yeah. and that's what we like to provide. So it's just half an hour. So down. Download like-minded friends. I'm going to do it straight after this podcast. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So thanks to Susie Ruffle. You should go and see her live. Her website is susieruffle.com and the podcast is Like-Minded Friends. Thanks to Grace. Thanks to Greg Beals and Emmanuel Koss. And please get in touch with us. You can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast. Actually, one of my reasons to be cheerful this week was that Ed finally followed me on Twitter. Spontaneously. <laughs> Ish. I don't, I don't feel you're quite, quite up on your social media etiquette, Ed. I mean, just let people into a secret. There I was on Sunday night waiting to hear the edited version of episode three with Jeff promising me like the minicab, it's just round the corner. <laughs> uh, and and then there's like a Twitter storm from my co-presenter against me about all of the people I follow on Twitter who are not him. But I'm thinking, I, I think, to... why the hell aren't you getting on with, you know, doing the edit? Never mind. I, I felt it was trolling an, it, me on it Twitter. Was, it was an important bit of social media etiquette that needed addressing, I feel. Well, then, then I eventually I decided to follow him and, and then soon after the edited version arrived. Yeah, weird that, isn't it? Yeah, funny. Yeah, you know, just, just one lever that I have at my disposal. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, you don't have that lever anymore now, do you? <laughs> Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Weiss-Bryce and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Ed Seed provided the music and our artwork was designed by Emily Power. It's a great show this week, I think. It was, yeah, yeah. A really fun show. Yeah, I mean, We had the BBC here as well. Yes, uh, to film for my mum's favourite programme, Daily Politics. So watch us. They said Tuesday, but I believe it when it happens. Yeah, they make us out. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.